I'm just going to call you back to your seats. Kirsten's going to pray for me today. Pray for my post-60 trauma that I'm experiencing. Oh <laughs> it's all good. Well, that's what that piece is. I thought that was <laughs> I thought it was numb. <laughs> it's gonna be we okay. have to wait for my husband to sit down. He's pretty. He's pretty social guy. He's yeah, uh, quite social. <laughs> way to go. <laughs> or at least stop talking. Okay. Father, thank you so much. Um, for blessing us here, our church family, with Gordy as a teacher and pastor to our families and um, all of us here. I pray, Father, that you would quiet our hearts to hear what you have to say through Gordy today. And I pray that for Gordy, he would have a clear mind and a peaceful spirit to um, just know what to say, how to say it, to hear your voice speaking to him even as he's re um, teaching from his notes. We invite your Holy Spirit's presence here today. And thank you um, for your love. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. What happened? Oh, the boom went down. Okay. Lowered the boom. Yeah. Let's just see if we can tighten that. It was an assassination attempt. All right. Um, one city, one message. Where did this idea come from? Well, last fall, I was attending what was called the Vancouver Consultation, which was a gathering of a large swath of the church in the city, not only in Vancouver, but in greater Vancouver. And we were talking together about our city. We were talking about how we could work more as one church uh, to, to live and be and proclaim the gospel. And as part of that, we invited some civic leaders to speak to us. And one of them was Councillor Andrea Reimer, just a lovely fireball of a lady. She, she grew up in Commercial Drive in, in uh, probably the same time as, as my own children. She probably grew up around the same time, same, same area, but really uh, challenged you know, socially and economically from a very uh, deprived background and really overcame a lot of things to now be an amazing city councillor with an amazing heart for the marginalized in the poor in our city. And so she spoke very passionately to us. She was honest about her not really feeling she had... Uh, she said she had, a, she had faith, but she didn't feel it was a faith in God. And... Um, but she, she recognizes the value of the church in the city. She really honored that and spoke to that. And while she was speaking, she mentioned the idea how that the Vancouver Public Library every year has what they call one city, one book, 
where they promote one book through the year and they try to get the whole city to, to at least read the same book. Among, of course, many other books that, that they hope you'll read, but at least that there's one book that the whole city has read together. And, and, she, and then she wondered out loud, wouldn't it be amazing if once a year the whole church in Vancouver preached the same sermon? And she encouraged us in her words, this was, these were her words, to use our moral authority to catalyze public conversations that matter by promoting an agreed-upon topic in our various congregations one Sunday per year. So we really felt that God spoke to us through Andrea, and, and so much so that we had some follow-up gatherings and I remember one particular gathering over here at First Christian Reform where many of us had gathered in the, in the room and we were talking about what topic would be important for us to address if we were to do this. And as we wrestled for the theme, we, be, we were reminded by a research done by the Vancouver Foundation who a few years ago initiated a study to d determine what people cared about most in our region. And surprisingly, the respondents overwhelmingly indicated that a, there was a growing sense of isolation and disconnection. Uh, it was their top concern. Many residents reported that they didn't know their neighbors, that they lacked a sense of belonging, and they didn't feel connected to their community. Which makes sense, because how can you look out for your neighbors if you don't know who they are? And so it was in response to this that we, we felt the Holy Spirit give us the topic, um, welcoming the stranger. And we set the day for today, the first Sunday after Pentecost, Trinity Sunday, June 11th, as the day that we would address that and grapple with that theme. And it happens to sync well, of course, here, for us here at VEV with our series, The Grace of Hospitality. But it also syncs amazingly with the season of Pentecost, even though Pentecost Sunday was actually last Sunday. It syncs amazingly with that as well. However, in that conversation, we struggled with the theme of some of us because to say welcoming the stranger for some created a sense of us and them. And they wondered if that was healthy. And, and, and I noticed particularly the ethnic uh, population of Vancouver really struggled with that language. You know, the Asian, uh, South American, African, some of these leaders struggled with that term, and we were, we were grappling with it, and all of a sudden, the, the Lord's words in Matthew 25 came to me, and I shared about it to the group. I said, Jesus said, I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And all of a sudden, it just turned the tables on that whole argument. It just switched it. Where all of a sudden, instead of us and them and welcoming the stranger, Jesus identifies with the stranger. He says, I'm that stranger. And when you love me and you see me and you take the time to reach out to me, uh, that is what you're doing when you, when you reach out to the stranger. The Greek word for stranger in that passage, by the way, is xenos, which means new, unfamiliar, novel, someone who is different or other than you. And Jesus identifies with them and says, I am them. They are us. 
There is no dividing line. So we added the tagline to welcoming the stranger. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Now, our text today seems a little strange because it's the familiar Great Commission passage from Matthew chapter 25, which, or 28, which you have on your reading sheet. So take them out. I'll read it because of the podcast, but you can uh, follow along. Uh, from Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into, the literal Greek of that is into the name, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptize them or integrate them or connect them into that sense of Trinitarian community and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The good news of Christ. So the essence, and we've talked about this in the last few Sundays, the essence of our mission is radical invitation, radical inclusion, and radical hospitality that crosses all boundaries, barriers and boundaries. It crosses barriers of gender, race, culture, social class, age, and even religion. It requires the capacity to love to welcome and engage the person that is novel, to use the Greek syntax there, the, the unknown, the, the person who's different, and to do the work that is necessary to get to know them and to love them. Yesterday I was so moved as I read a story in the Vancouver Sun, amazing timing, about, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, but it's, it, I think it's Rateb or Rateb, R-A-T-E-B. He's a 19-year-old Syrian refugee living in Victoria. He works at Zazu Cafe in downtown Victoria. And because of his involvement in the cafe, he's added a Syrian soup called Sherbet Ades on the menu. And it's a combination of red lentil spice with cumin. And it helps him connect his old life in Syria with his new life in Canada. The cafe owner, Tracy Higgins, is not just, the son said this, this is the son writing, says he, she is not just his boss. Right now, she's the closest thing that he has to a mother. He is living in her home and with her and her husband until he can find affordable housing. He's a government-sponsored refugee, which, as you know, that runs out after a year. And then you, if you don't have any uh, uh, job, then you go into social assistance. Go, and, the, and the son writes that government-supported refugees, they get the financial help, but they often don't have the relational social support that private sponsorships do. Now, he met his boss, Tracy, through her sister, who was out dancing one night, and she met Rateb. 
and she encouraged him to apply at her restaurant for a job. A few months later, with the help of a settlement worker, he came in with his resume. In the interview, his hands were shaking so bad. And they were clasped together as if in prayer that he would be hired. The son goes on to write that he didn't expect that this job would come with a family. His parents and siblings, now he's 19 years old, are still stuck in Syria, trying to get out. They're waiting for the day that they can come to Canada and join him. His mom, his dad, about five siblings. He's, and his boss is organizing a fundraiser to raise enough money to sponsor this family privately. He fled Syria for Lebanon at the age of 14. I don't know if you know this, but in Syria, young guys are conscripted very young and forced to fight in the army. And he applied in Lebanon at the age of 14 for refugee status. He's been on his own for five years. He was resettled as a refugee in Victoria at the age of 18 by Canada. Yet though he's surrounded by people, he feels so alone. And his boss remembers the first heart-to-heart that she had with Reteb after the cafe employees had left that one of those early days that he was there. And she said, how are you doing? And he broke down and wept. And she said, he just sobbed in my arms. So at that point, I suggested that he live with us rent-free until he can get more support and find social housing. And she said this, ever since then, he's my son, at least until his family gets here. And they finished the article. There's a lot that they talk about the issues that face refugees today. But they finished the article with a quote by Reteb where he says, if I have no family, I have no life. Welcoming the stranger is so connected to Pentecost. It's unbelievable. Let's talk about Pentecost for a sec. Pentecost is a familiar term. We connect it with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church in the day in the book of Acts. But it was actually a harvest festival in the Old Testament. It was a huge party that celebrated God's goodness. It celebrated his generosity. It celebrated his provision and abundance. And Eugene Peterson comments that the Jews also celebrated Pentecost as a celebration of the birth of the nation of Israel. It was believed to be 50 days after the Passover and on Mount Sinai, God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. So Pentecost is also a celebration of that moment when God gave Israel an identity and a constitution. And he said, you are my people, I am yours, and you are mine. And it was the covenant, a celebration of that covenant that God made with his people. Interesting that that's the day he chose to pour out his spirit on the new Israel in the book of Acts. The word Pentecost comes from the Greek word, which means 50th. Dang. Be nice if it was 60th, but anyway, it's all right. It has to do with a feast that is closely co- coincided with the Passover in Israel. 
Often those who came to celebrate Passover in coming years would stay on for Pentecost and not go home till after the Pentecost festival, as we see in the book of Acts. So they would count 50 days after the Passover and they would hold a massive party. It was also called the Feast of Weeks because they would count seven weeks after Passover and particularly a small celebration called First Fruits. Now let me explain this. In Israel's calendar, the Passover was determined by the lunar calendar. That's why our Easter is never the same day every, in the year. We always follow the Passover schedule. And they would wait for the new moon to come. When the new moon was co- came, they would count a certain number of days, and then they would launch the Passover celebration. And at the end of the Passover week, on the day after the Sabbath, which is Sunday, they would have a feast called the First Fruits Feast, which was a, a feast of celebrating that the first part, it's like my little radishes that are starting to come up and, and I get my first radish. And God said, when you get that first radish, I'm talking about my Let's Grow Together community garden bed there, is that I got to remember that, don't I? I got to bring the first radish to God. But you offer it as a first fruit, right? And then they would count seven weeks. So here's how the book of Deuteronomy describes the party of Pentecost. God said, count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God, or Pentecost, by giving a free will offering in the proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. And party! Okay, well, the... It says, and rejoice. Before the Lord your God, at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, who's to party? You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, the foreigners, the immigrants, the refugees, the fatherless, the widows living among you. It's to be a party For everybody, everybody gets to play in this party. But not, it was to be a party not just with those you know, but those you don't know. Not just with those that are familiar to you, but the stranger and those that are unfamiliar, that look different, that dress different, that act differently. It's to include them. And in the book of Leviticus, God adds an interesting note to this whole thing of Pentecost. And He says, when you are harvesting the land, this is right in the context of telling them how to harvest, how to to have Pentecost. God says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field. Or don't gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor, for the foreigner, the immigrant, the refugee residing among you. I am Yahweh, your God. Now, I wish I would have read that when I was a kid. Because one of my jobs was to mow the church lawns and to mow my own, my own home's lawn. My dad gave me my job. I don't think I got paid, but I, I think I got my allowance. I think I, yeah. So it was kind of like a, a living wage I was given. And I remember my first times I mowed that lawn. That lawn looked beautiful in the middle. But on the edges... There was still a lot of grass sprouting up. 
And that's exactly what God told Moses to do and the children of Israel to do. He said, leave the edges. Leave it growing. Don't just, don't be, don't take out your trimmer and your weed eater and edge it. Just leave the edges. Leave the margins for the marginalized. Don't have a stingy eye. Don't have a generous eye. Recognize that I am the provider and that I will pro provide enough for you to also make room for the foreigner and the, and the poor. So Eugene Peterson in his book Five Stones of Pastoral Ministry points out that there were five feasts in Israel and this was the, the custom in the Jewish tradition is, uh, does anybody know what the five major feasts were? The first one was the Passover. Then what did we have? Pentecost, then? Tabernacles, yeah. That was Pentecost, same thing. There was a, the, the, the last two are a little bit harder because they're not so much in the Bible. But one was called the Feast of Ab. Feast of Ab was, a, was actually a, a, a feast that was more about grief. It was more about lamenting the fall of Jerusalem. And then there was the Feast of Purim. Does anybody remember that one? Queen Esther, exactly. Now, for each of the five feasts, they had a custom in their tradition is they would read a small book from the Bible with all the children present, with everybody there uh, that was supposed to be at the party or the, the festival. They would bring, they would bring a, a small book from the Torah or from the, from the Old Testament, and they would read it. So for the Passover, they would read the book of Song of Solomon. Interesting, eh? Song of Solomon goes with the Passover. With the Feast of Ab, they would read the book of Lamentations, which is just the, the fall of Jerusalem. It's lamenting the fall. With the Feast of uh, Purim, they would read the book of Esther. With the Feast of... Um, there's one other one before Pentecost. I'll get to Pentecost then. Huh? Tabernacles, they would read the book of Ecclesiastes. Interesting, eh? And for the Feast of Pentecost, what did they read? Does anybody know? Good try. It's crazy. The book of Ruth. Now, why would they read the book of Ruth on this feast that of, of harvest and this feast of giving the law. It's this cosmic event that's happening. They would take out this little, simple, quiet, sleepy story about a, a little woman and her mother-in-law who meets a farmer and gets married. Why would they read this story? Well, as you read the book of Ruth, you find that it lives and breathes the spirit of Pentecost. It's amazing. The story starts with a Jewish man and his wife, Naomi, and two sons who, in the land of Israel, we don't know if it's because of God's judgment or if it was just life, but there was a um, famine. And so they fled, which is what causes refugees, isn't it, is when you have tragedy and unexpected circumstances that force people to flee, to, to survive. And so they flee to Moab, the land of Moab, which was traditionally a, an enemy of the Jewish nation. 
And human mobility has always been, for survival, has been a part of human history. And of course, it's no less, if not more true today than any time. And over the course of time, with, with, they had two sons, in, in, as I mentioned, and uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. So she was left a widow with her two sons who were growing up, and they were old enough, you know, maybe kind of around Samuel's age, growing up and providing support to her. And over the period of time, they got old enough to get married, and they married two Moabite women. One married a lady by the name of Orpha, and the other married a lady by the name of Ruth. But then for Naomi, who is the mother, the unspeakable happens. As you know, a woman in those times was very dependent on the men in her life, if not her husband, definitely her sons. Unbelievably, both sons die. So she's left a widow and her two daughter-in-laws. Uh, Moabite women are left widows. And it just speaks to me as I was reading this today, I don't know why, the, or this week in preparation, the pain of this hit me hard related to Pentecost, related to welcoming the stranger, is that this is what people are facing all the time, is the inexplicable nature of tragedy and pain, as we've seen again in the news this week. And there's something unexplainable about tragedy. We don't understand why a woman who's just simply trying to have a life loses her husband, loses her two sons, and all she's left with is destitution. Why does a man like David Gott, who founded International China Concern, uh, the organization that Karen works for. I don't understand this. Why? He's given his life. I heard the story of a, of, a, of a little boy with cerebral palsy at five years of age, abandoned by his mom in China at a train station. And International China Concern picked him up, and he gave his testimonies now in his 20s, and he still speaks with that difficulty of someone with cerebral palsy, like he was being interviewed on the video. But he has two jobs. He lives on his own. He's a pastor in his church, and he's taking seminary training. Because someone welcomed the stranger. And there's stories like this, amazing stories. But here's David Gott. He's from the Vancouver area just in the last few days, has buried his own son from cancer, his little boy. And I don't understand that. I'm sorry, I don't have a theological explanation for that. There isn't one. And so the whole point of this, the story of Ruth, is tragedy happens, heartbreak happens. We don't understand it. Of course, we're always praying and believing for God's intervention, for his protection and his kingdom, but we know that it doesn't always happen the way we want it to happen. And it certainly didn't for Naomi. So there's a description, such a description of, of loneliness and, and displacement in our world. And like this Syrian teenager, Reteb, who longs to be with his family, Naomi is all of a sudden realizing there is no family, there is no life. 
And she hears that food is again available back in her homeland, so she prepares to go back. And her daughters-in-law, which was the culturally appropriate thing to do, insist on going with her to raise up more offspring for her family line uh, if they can hopefully remarry. But she tells them, what's the point? I'm old. I have no future. I've lost my husband. I've lost my sons. She says, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. You ever felt like that because of the circumstances of your life? So they wept. And Orpha said goodbye. But Ruth clung unto Naomi. Naomi said, what are you doing? Go! She just almost violently told Ruth, go, go away from me. But Ruth replied what I think are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture, right? Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Could someone take care of that phone? I would just really like us to respect uh, the scriptures here and the word. Thanks so much. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So they returned to Bethlehem, and it so happens, guess when it is? The time of the barley harvest. It's right around Pentecost, right? And so what do the poor do during the barley harvest? How do they survive? They go out, and they go where the harvesters are harvesting, and they find the edges, and they find the gleanings, and they provide, and... It so happens that Ruth is noticed by a distant relative of Naomi and he tells his workers, hey, don't only leave the gleanings for her, don't only leave the edges for her, but pull up a few things and throw them aside so she thinks they're gleanings for her too. And he shows her kindness and he gets his workers to protect her and tells her to stay in his field so she's not abused by other workers in other fields. And to make a long story short, a love story happens. And uh, Ruth and Boaz get married. And they have a baby, and Ruth presents Naomi with a beautiful grandson named Obed. Obed grew up and had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David. And Matthew continues that genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. 
down the line till Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus came into the world because someone was willing to keep the festival of Pentecost. And I love, this, I love the end of Ruth. It says this, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout all Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, get this, your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. She's not only a woman, she's not only a Gentile. But now they declare she's better than seven sons. Then Naomi took the child in her arms. Can you imagine the, the, the pain that she's been through? The tragedy that she's walked through. And we now see beauty being turned into ashes. She takes that child in his arms and says she cared for him. That little guy had the best grandma, well, second best grandma you could ever imagine. She cared for him. And they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Wow. So Pentecost, and keeping Pentecost, and welcoming the stranger, gives birth to God's purposes on earth. It allows the kingdom of God to advance. So what I'd like you to do is to take out your reading sheets again, and at the end of the reading sheet, there are some questions. And I'd like you to turn to groups of three, two or three, or four, if, you, if it's better. And I'd like you to take a few moments just to talk to one another about question three. And that is, how is God in this season of expanding our table? Hmm? Oh, sorry, it's on the bulletin, not on, the, not on your reading sheet. Question three on your bulletin is take some time to share on how God's grace is leading you to expand the table and welcome the stranger this year. And feel free to share stories. Now, I don't want you to hear in this, how am I going to try harder? How am I going to do more? Because none of us have any capacity to try harder or do more. This is about the gleanings. What I love about the story of the gleanings is God didn't ask uh, Boaz to give what he didn't have. He gave what he had. He took what he already had in his life and he made room. He made margin for it. So, the, hear it in that spirit. Um, God is not asking you to give what you don't have. God is not asking you to do more than you, you're already doing. It's, it's not that. It's, it's actually a, a, a mind adjustment, a heart adjustment to creating space, not doing more. Can you get the spirit of that? All right? So, take a few minutes. Talk to each other. Tell stories. Maybe there's stories that are already happening in your life of, of how God is doing this in your life. It doesn't have to be things that are already happening. It could be just dreams you have. Share hopes you have of how we 
can expand the table. And then I'll call you back in about six to eight minutes, okay? Just call you back. Thanks. Thanks for engaging so enthusiastically. This is, this is not meant to be the end of the conversation. I want this to continue. Keep, keep chatting about this. Um, sure. <laughs> uh, but before I benedict you, <laughs> we're going to have a benediction. Is there anything that really stood out that you think everybody should hear uh, in your group? Yeah. And shows you how much you have. Like it yeah. emphasizes again how what abundance we have. Yeah. Where you just give what you feel like is the edge of everything the person that you extended it to. Yeah. Yeah, I think one thing I forgot to mention with the gleanings is God challenged me about this about 15 years ago because when we first came to Vancouver, uh, we, we were literally collecting bottles to survive. Kathleen would go and collect bottles. <laughs> And then when, when we would shop, I would take every bottle that was the, had a deposit, and I would go get my $3 at Superstore or wherever I was just for extra spending money. And then as the Lord got us on our feet and, and started to bless us financially more, I was still doing that. And one day it was like the Spirit said, what are you doing? And, and that, those are your gleanings. Don't you remember living off those? So I started leaving them out you know, for, for the binners and the, and the bottlers that come down our alley. And, and I realized over the years that what it did in my heart is they are my neighbors. They're not just some whatever uh, impersonal object out there that's an issue or a social concern. They're my neighbors. And there has been connection through that by, by just being willing to leave those kind of gleanings. So that's an example. It's small. But th it, th I think that's the whole point of it. Kathleen?
Beautiful. Great story. Cool. Yeah, so I, I, my prayer is that you would leave with that today, that you give out of what you have, not what you don't have. God is not expecting you. I think it was Parker Palmer who said that when we try to give out of what we don't have and what we're not, it's not love. It's not love. It's obligation. It's duty. But when you give out of what you have, then you're giving out of that, out of what God has given you. So I'd like you, if you can, to stand with me, and I'm going to close, and I'd like you to encourage you to continue this conversation. But I want to bless you on this Trinity Sunday with this beautiful benediction that Paul gave to the Corinthians. And he says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. There it is again, party. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. I'm not sure how literal we're supposed to take this, but it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you as you welcome the stranger and leave the gleanings this week. Have a wonderful, blessed week.